Hi guys and happy Monday. I am so excited for you all to listen to this episode with Brooke. She's just so amazing and I think her story is really powerful and I really encourage you all to buy her memoir, May Cause Side Effects. Um, not only is it just a really interesting story, but she's also just a beautiful writer, which I all I really appreciate um, because I'm an avid reader, as you can probably tell by listening to this episode because I just listened to it back and I realized that I was like, oh yeah, I'm reading this book and this book and this book. And I was like, okay, I have a lot of free time in my hands. So I'm definitely reading a lot. Before I jump into my conversation with Brooke, um, I just wanted honestly to make a quick plug for mental health. It's still May. Um, so it is mental health awareness month. And obviously for me, I, I think every month should be mental health awareness month, but with it being, you know, with a focus on mental health, I just want to reiterate that if you are struggling um, or and, and maybe you're nervous to talk to someone, whether that be a friend, family member, coworker, et cetera, or even if you have talked to people and maybe you feel like, oh, I don't want to bother them again with another, um, you know, another message, another text, another quote unquote problem of mine. This is my request to say, please don't hesitate to reach out. If you're not comfortable talking to a friend, you can reach out to me just if you want to talk. Um, and if you are looking to speak with a licensed professional, there's there's so many options out there. And maybe you're not ready for, you know, traditional therapy, and that's totally okay. I have a partnership with BetterHelp, which I want to plug right now rather than, you know, make it a, an ad in the middle of the episode. I've used BetterHelp. I, I actually used BetterHelp for about three years. So I'm here to tell you, I obviously every online therapy platform has, you know, it's, it's issues. And I, I worked at an online therapy platform for about a year and a half. I am, can attest to that, but I'm telling you that with the right therapist, it doesn't matter. And I was very fortunate that my, I think it was like my second or third therapist on BetterHelp really, really, really helped me through some of the darkest times of my life. And I'm not just saying that because, you know, BetterHelp sponsors this podcast. I'm saying that in a hundred percent sincerity. I really truly have my BetterHelp therapist, I think for so much. And so all that is to say that if you just want to try out therapy just want to speak to someone even if it's just for a month to just kind of get off those feeling get those feelings off your chest it's so worth it and you can use my code to get 10% off or don't use my code I don't care just go to betterhelp.com or if you want to use my code betterhelp.com slash zoe and you will get 10% off your first month I really 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 encourage anyone who's struggling or who just wants to try therapy because everyone should um to check it out. So that's betterhelp.com slash Zoe, Z-O-E for 10% off your first month. And just on another note, just tell, text everyone you love them. Tell people you love them every day. Don't hold in a kind thought. Be kind always. And I love you all. If you, again, if you are just wanting to talk to someone, um, you know, I'm, I'm always here and I'm here to listen. So without further ado, here is Brooke. Thank you. 
Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Solace in the City. Today, I am so excited to be here with Brooke Seam, who is a writer, award-winning chef, and author of the memoir, May Cause Side Effects. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. As I was mentioning before, I've kind of been thinking about writing a memoir. I've been so inspired by so many of the books that I've read recently and then had the uh, chance to interview the authors and... I read your book and I was like so impressed by how well written it was and it was just like so thought provoking and inspiring. So I just wanted to quickly mention that um, I obviously like will link it and everything. But have you did you always this is actually just an impromptu question, but like did you always think about writing a book? Was that like always something in the back of your mind? It really wasn't actually. Um you know, my book is about antidepressant withdrawal and it's about recovering after 15 years of long-term depression that, you know, I was kind of for a long time under the impression that I would never really recover from, that it was chronic and treatment resistant and all those unfortunate words that we hear. Yeah. So I really didn't have any creative urge at all during that time. And that was from when I was 15 to 30. So that's a pretty formative chunk of time where you start to think about, okay, who am I and what do I want to do with my life? So not really having any creative instinct at that point kind of meant that writing didn't really enter my, you know, frame of mind at all. Um, I did, I did do some writing here and there. I knew I was good at it. I knew I had kind of an innate talent for it. I mean, that said, it still took a lot of work to craft the book. I mean, five years of writing. So it wasn't like I, you know, pooped it out in a night, right? Yeah. <laughs> Very slowly. But now I understand, okay, not only do I have a creative urge back because, you know, now I'm off all the antidepressants and recovered. And so I want to be creative all the time. So now I think much more in the, in the mindset of, okay, is there another book? What would it be? And that's, it's daunting even when you've done it a couple of times. Yeah. Okay. That, that makes sense. It's like, it's almost like you didn't really know like what you wanted or who you wanted to be because of the facade or not facade, but just like clouding of depression and all that comes with it. Yeah. That's, that's so interesting. Okay. So backtrack, um, tell me a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? Where'd you grow up? How old are you? What do you do for work? What's your story? Sure. So I'm Brooke Seem. Uh, that's S-I-E-M. You can find me all over the internet at Brooke Seem. I was I was born in Reno, Nevada, and um, and I'm 37 now. So you know my my book takes place uh, when I was 30. So basically from the ages of about 30 to 31. But so I'm now seven years off of antidepressants. So it's a lot of my work now is around antidepressant withdrawal and safety prescribing mm-hmm. the overmedication of children. But then I also have this other side of my life because, you know, writers aren't exactly known for their riches. So we all have to make money. And I've been working as a chef in a variety of capacity in industry or in a variety of uh, ways throughout the industry since I graduated college in 2008. So, oh, wow. okay. yeah, so I still cook like I have two lives. One is talking about, you know, patient advocacy for antidepressant withdrawal, safety, prescribing education, promoting the book. And then the other one is working as a chef. I now do research and development. I also do some private work. I don't work in restaurants anymore. Thank God. And uh, so, yeah, I talk about hard stuff and then go make cookies. That's so 
that's so interesting and it's a good balance because I was gonna say like I mean right now I'm reading um Sweet Bitter by mm-hmm. Stephanie Dandler yeah. And so I was going to say that it's definitely if you're in the restaurant business might not be like helping that other side of your life. But good to hear that <laughs> you're kind of doing it on your own time. Uh, yeah, I uh, I learned I learned fairly early on in my career that restaurants is not going to be a place where I would thrive. Some people do, but it wasn't for me. So I've, I've worked everywhere else. Catering. I actually own my own bakery in Manhattan for a while, uh, about five years. We, we had a bakery here and that was... For me, I, I preferred that to, you know, the basement of a sweaty kitchen. Yeah, absolutely. I can't even imagine. So um, in your memoir, you mentioned that you, you know, were first prescribed antidepressant medication when you were 15. And so I was I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about kind of like when you first, because I think about a lot, I'm like, when did I first realize that like, A, like mental health was a thing and B that like I was not getting the long end of the stick so to speak with my (laughs) own mental health and I and I like I don't know I go back and forth so when do you feel like you first experienced mental health difficulties and do you feel like it came before the the prescribed medication or at least what it was prescribed for let's say this is a really interesting question and no one's ever asked me this before Um, I, so I, I was 15 and my father suddenly passed away. So that's the context here is we had a, you know, sudden traumatic event that of course nobody plans for. And I was at a very precarious age. Mm -hmm. The other thing that was happening right at that time was it was right when the internet was hitting households. So, and it was right at the time there was, you know, a wide variety of blogs that were on places like livejournal.com and, you know, these, these very, very, uh, I mean, you know, the cavemen style of blogs, HTML, terrible graphics, where I remember I had one and I had to learn HTML code in order to make my live journal blog look the way I wanted it to. Right. So it was the absolute seeds of social media on the internet. And, the first time I remember having some sort of mental health uh, awareness was was just because I came across blogs about anorexia and eating disorders. And I was a very serious dancer at the time. And it kind of was almost like, it's just kind of gross to say, but it was almost like a light bulb moment where, oh, well, you need to be thin to dance. And then here's this, like, let's let's do that. And it was a very... It didn't even feel like a concerning choice at the moment. It just, I mean, I think being 15, you're, you're not fully baked <laughs> in any way, right? Mm-hmm. There's no real, no real concern about longevity and we, you still think you're invisible and all those things that make you think you can survive stupid choices. But I, I didn't, you know, the idea of a mental illness never really entered my brain when, when these little ideas were first presented to me. And I I would say, I mean, even the conception of mental illness as a concept, even after I had been to a child psychiatrist or a child psychologist, because that's what happened is my mom took me to a child psychologist after my dad had died. And, you know, she eventually said, you're wasting your money. What you need is a child psychiatrist and I'm diagnosing an anxiety and depressive disorder. And at that point I was a very, very 
academically oriented kid. So I took myself to Borders books. I mean, I'm dating myself right here. <laughs> no, no, I remember Borders. Yeah, I loved Borders because they had big fluffy chairs that you could sit in and I would just go wander into the psych psychology and psychiatry section and find books on all of these mental ailments that I thought were really interesting and just sit there. And so I would sit and read the DSM or I would sit and read some book on anorexia and that was my introduction to it. It was basically knowledge yeah. that, 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 that showed me that this was, you know, an avenue for people. And I, and in retrospect, I'm thinking about that now. It's so fascinating. I mean, I, and I, you know, I now dive into this work all the time and, you know, I've since learned that the cultural implications of mental illness actually help, they, they help determine the outward appearance of a mental illness in an individual. So what that means is that, uh, you know, depression in one country doesn't necessarily look like depression in another because our cultural understanding of what it is actually influences its outcome. Yeah. So I think that you know, with TikTok, with with the internet, with the way media spreads now, it's not surprising to me that we've seen such an increase for a variety of reasons. I think this is just one out, one aspect of it because we are so much more aware of it. And when we are presented with something that validates our internal experience, we are then either subconsciously or consciously, you know, our brain starts going and we actually start manifesting the symptoms that we are presented with. So that's what happened to me. I mean, it was yeah. just a very precarious time. Had this happened five years earlier in the 90s, I'm not sure I would have ended up on the same path. That's, I have so many thoughts. Like, that makes so much sense. Because when I, like when I say like I quote unquote struggle to identify when exactly like this all started for me personally, I think back to what was it, like 2010, 2011 when I was a freshman in high school and like similarly, I, you know, everything was Tumblr. Like everyone mm -hmm. had like a sad girl Tumblr and I would find myself posting like pictures of like really like emaciated girls and it was all black and white. I don't know why I wasn't even, I was I a very that. happy kid. I don't know why my Tumblr was all black and white and just like really depressed. Maybe it was like foreshadowing, but it was like just, and at that time too, all of my friends at the high school I was at, I lived abroad in Athens, Greece. So it was like a very unique mm -hmm. situation. Um, I just remember them constantly looking at the mirror and being like, and these girls also keep in mind, we're like tiny, like super thin already, but they're like saying how fat they were and their legs were too big and like all of that. And I remember just watching and being like, they're not fat. Like, what are they talking about? And it was so, I was so oblivious to it. You know, every day I'd go home from high school and like eat a Magnum bar and of like whatever. And it was almost like it surrounded me, but it didn't seep in until later. <laughs> when I then started like measuring my thighs and like I then started trying to lose weight at a way too young of an age. And so it's interesting how we like are, as you said, like, you know, kind of given these external influences, whether it's the media or our friends and it's like, oh, maybe should I be doing that? Like, should I be concerned mm -hmm. about this? Um, And then to your other point, I, it's funny because I've been reading this book and I've been reading it for like almost a year now because I listen to it on an audiobook and it's like very slow, but it's called Saving Normal. It's by Alan Francis who helped write the DSM-4. I know Alan Francis, yeah. And it's fascinating. Like yeah. 
I just read this chapter where in I think it was in the it was either proposed for the DSM four or five. Must have been four because the I don't think the DSM five came out when um Alan Francis wrote this book, but it was like a proposed disorder called like com- anxious depression or something. Basically like mm. a combination of an anxiety and depression. And his argument is like any person in their life would have experienced all of these symptoms. Mm-hmm. So it's it's just further medicalizing yeah. a society, which is something I didn't think I would grow to believe in. But now, now like the more I see it, the more I'm like, there's a lot of really good points. Mm-hmm. But it is hard to differentiate between like, well, then what do we do with like, you know, this with social media hurting our like um self-esteem and you know kids getting exposed to things too young it's like this catch-22 of like we're gonna we're in like a mental health crisis but we also just can't over diagnose and over Mm -hmm. you know and just push and pill push yeah which is what we're currently doing and we Mm -hmm. now have you know about 50 years of evidence that doesn't look good right i mean the first, you know, group of antidepressants kind of came out in the between the fifties and seventies, and then you had Effexor that hit, or sorry, not Effexor, Prozac that hit in the eighties, and then you know your your uh, your Zoloft's and your Effexor and Wellbutrin's that all kind of came around in the mid two thousands. So we have decades of data now that you'd think if this strategy was working, we would see rates of depression going down, we would see rates of suicide going down, we would see rates of disability due to depression and other mental illnesses go down and the exact opposite is happening. Right. So I think there's a pretty strong argument to be made that at least this, you know, you know, spray and pray strategy of putting everyone on some psychiatric drug is not working. Is, is there perhaps, you know, a room room for extremely severe cases in certain circumstances? I I think we can leave that door open, but you know, you're not going to convince me that, you know, one in six people are walking around with a mental illness, even though one or six people are walking around on antidepressants, right? A thousand percent. Yeah. But I think to that note, what that's forcing us to do, and and if you look at this in the bigger context of what's going on in medicine, especially in the United States, I mean, I can only really speak to the United States since I live here. You know, all of us who hasn't had an absolutely horrific experience trying to go to the doctor, right? Yeah. (laughs) Whether or not you're trying to get something covered by insurance and it's getting denied or you just can't find a doctor or the wait is, you know, four or five months or you get into a doctor and the treatment is terrible or the information is bad or it's antiquated. You know, I think what this is really asking us to do is to change the way we exist in the world, because as we become more connected and there becomes more really options for a way to live, mm-hmm. it's unreasonable to put blanket uh, treatments and also strategies, you know, just for living onto an entire group of people that is trying to experience different things. So from my perspective, what this means is we have to really turn inward and we have to say, okay, what is best for, you know, me or my family and how do we, how do we manage that? And so I, I, it means we have to implore, you know, use critical thinking skills we have to think about the consequences of buying a 12-year-old an iPhone. Yeah. And 
you know, maybe you have to have a little bit more of a backbone if they're, if the family, if the kid is saying, but my friends, you know, like. It brings it, it to like a larger public health issue. Like yeah. of external forces. And I mean, granted, I think I took one public health class in college, but it's. And, and like where it brings in politics and it brings in like a lot of factors. Yeah. But I think that is, again, another reason why there isn't being change. There isn't change. It's so complex and it's so individual to each family unit or each individual that there's no way, I think, to look outside of yourself and find the answer. I think it's got to be within and you've got to make choices that are going to seem absurd to some people, but that's because we're not living in the same world. I mean, you and your neighbor could live on the same street, but based on the information you're consuming and the culture that you grew up in, you are literally living in two different worlds. Mm -hmm. So your choices aren't going to be the same. And, you know, just as we need to respect other people's choices, we also need to give them the opportunity to make a choice that may not fall, you know, right in line. Yeah. No, I completely agree. So in your memoir, you explained how, you know, at the age of 30, you finally decided to reevaluate the medications you were taking and ultimately wane off of them completely. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about like, kind of what made you ultimately come to that decision and mm -hmm. and like that just that process and what it looked like because I think like I don't know for for a quick reference I was prescribed I was prescribed an SSRI when I was 23 I think like 23 almost 24 Which and one? Zoloft and at the time it was like I had done buttloads of therapy my for a very long time and I was still like and I was one thing I don't want to go on medication I don't want to go on antidepressants blah, blah blah and then like finally I, I had a really good doctor and she explained it to me well and she's like we could try it a little bit and if it works great if it doesn't you know whatnot and for me personally like it did very much help like I saw like my I, I didn't have any side effects I got very lucky and but on the flip side when I was like much younger maybe 16 I was started taking clonopin for a neurological disorder that's like doesn't have a real treatment and at the time like I I think it works kind of but I do not think I should have been prescribed that because that is a really a, I mean I forget the words addictive I don't know if that's like the correct term but very hard to wane off and I yeah and I still have trouble, like, like I want to get off of it, but it's it's a big process. So I, I, all that is to say, I was curious to hear your own experience and like, just the complexities that it, come with it. Mm -hmm. have, have you run into the Ashton manual? No. Uh, I might write that down and just look at that because the Ashton manual is one of it was um, written by a British uh, pharmacologist named Heather Ashton. And she spent her life working with people who were trying to come off a variety of benzodiazepines. And so clonopin would kind of fall, fall into that. And she, the, the method that she created to help get off of benzos is now a very similar method to one that's used to help get off antidepressants because they're, they're quite similar in the way people need to taper, but mm -hmm. um, it, it just might help. Uh, anyway. That's good to know. Um, so for me, so I was prescribed Wellbutrin XL and Effexor XR when I was 15 and those, both of those drugs, I mean, I, 
people ask me a lot, like, well, did you have any, did you notice an improvement when, when I first went on them? And I don't really have a solid answer for two reasons. One is that there was, I have a lot of memory loss uh, that is associated both around the time that my father died and then also the long-term use of, of Effexor and Wellbutrin. One of the long-term side effects is memory loss. So there's a lot of memories gone from, from these 15 years. And I don't, I, like, I just can't remember or connect. And so what I do know is kind of comes from other people and, you know, when I was prescribed these, I wasn't in active crisis, right? I mean, I wasn't threatening to kill myself. I wasn't, you know, hanging out with the wrong crowd and doing hard drugs. My grades, you know, they'd slipped a little bit, but I was not, you know, going from getting A's to flunking out. So it was really more of just kind of a persistent melancholy that was concerning, combined with almost a stoicism around 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 the death. So that is what concerned people. And they, they were, it was almost a preventative measure, right? They didn't want me to get worse. Yeah. So when I was put on them, I, I know that there wasn't some night and day improvement. It also wasn't, you know, I didn't have any obvious side effects on those two drugs. I did on other ones, but on these ones I didn't. And so it was kind of just like a, whatever, right. It was told yeah. how, was told how safe these were and kind of like there's no harm and just you know you may as well and so I was 15 I'm what am I gonna do not listen to the doctor like it's not gonna happen so I just followed directions and it didn't really occur to me that there might be a problem with that because as I continued to get refills over the next 15 years whatever doctor I was seeing never questioned the fact that I had been on them for so long uh, I was also on four other drugs that had been prescribed in the year after I had started taking the antidepressants to, um, I had a bunch of physical ailments that came up and we didn't realize that there might be a connection. Yeah. I was going to say, did anyone like put two and two together? No. no one put two and two together at the time. Actually, no one put two and two together until like 15 years later. So then what happened is, so I'm on this same cocktail of drugs for 15 years and I'm 30. And, and now we're more in kind of like an, you know, I, I still don't want to use the word active, but it was kind of an internal crisis. I mean, I was, you know, suicide was a regular thought, but not in a way that was like scary. It was just there. It was insidious yeah, like the ideation. all the time. Right. But like, I thought about how my hair was brown too. It felt just as like, just as non-alarming because it was so common. And you know, I, I would make sarcastic jokes and all those sorts of things, but I kind of, you know, created a personality of sarcasm and dark humor. So, you know, people think it's normal. Right. And I mm -hmm. thought that's who I was because this had happened over 15 years, but then I kind of got this, um, it started to dawn on me that I shouldn't be thinking about suicide this way. If my antidepressants were working, and it also dawned on me that I had never had an unmedicated moment as an adult. Yeah. And it just got me thinking. And I was like, this is, I don't know if this is right. Like, clearly, I am not thriving. <laughs> so that thought kind of sat in me for a little while. And then right at the same period of time, I got this opportunity to travel around the world for a year. And it was that opportunity I realized, all right, I have to take this because there's no way my life will be the same. And what I desperately need is for my life to be different. 
and I can't stay on these drugs because I can't get them refilled in the places we're going. I can't have a suitcase of eight different drugs that would last me a year. Like they're, it's just not going to happen. And so that's when I said, okay, like let's, let's get off the antidepressants. I just started with those. It didn't even occur to me that the physical stuff was ever going to go away. So I said, let's get off the antidepressants. Let's see what my baseline is. It won't take very long. I stupidly thought that. And, uh, you know, I figured I would just like switch to another drug and that would just be it. But instead what happened is I, you know, I was pulled off the effects are too quickly for a variety of reasons, went into deep, deep, deep antidepressant withdrawal that was intense and horrific and awful. And it lasted for over a year. Wow. And in that period of time is when I started to realize that these drugs had a much larger effect on my entire, not just my psyche, but my emotional health, my, my physical my physical body, I mean, I, colors changed. Literally the colors of the world changed for me when I, when this drug got out of my system. And so I said, okay, I need to, I can't go back on again. Like it's just, I need to figure out really who I am without these drugs. And then interestingly, all the physical, I said, let's try and get off all the other prescription drugs too. And all of the physical symptoms that I had that developed after I went on the antidepressants went away. So now I'm just kind of like, I don't know. It seems pretty obvious correlation there. Yeah, that's it's a little coincidence is not quite, I don't know. <laughs> that's so wild. And, it, and it's interesting too, because I think like when we're 15, we think we're old and we think, mm-hmm. you know, we think we're smart enough to make these decisions, but like granted a, that wasn't a decision that was made really by you because I mean, at least to my knowledge, 15 is still considered a minor in most places. Yep. And B 15 is so young, like so young. And to have your whole adult life clouded by like, and it's and it's hard because on one hand, you know, you're experiencing grief and this is something like Alan Francis talks about, but it's like how do you all of the symptoms of grief are the same symptoms of depression. So there's a yeah. very uh, obviously, you know, pro there's prolonged grief and things like that, but there's other ways to cope that don't involve just being like throwing, you know, a script on it. So that's so interesting and also, it's, I mean, were you at all ever, like, ever scared when you went on this trip that, like, because I think you mentioned being in, like, Malaysia and, like, I mean, not exactly places that are close by. Were you ever nervous that, like, what if I'll need those drugs again? Yes. And also, yes and also no. So the timing of it was I had gotten this opportunity and decided to get off the antidepressants in March. My flight out of the United States wasn't until basically September 1st. So in my head, I'm thinking, I've got six months. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's going to be fine, right? Yeah. And it wasn't. But at the same time, I had put so many things in place that were that would have been just extremely difficult and expensive to reverse that I kind of just said, like, I have to just do this. And... Because it was 2016, there was no 
real information on withdrawal uh, and, and very little patient information. So, so now again, I mean, this is where the internet really comes in full force. We have a lot more patient advocacy group, advocacy groups. You know, you can go on Facebook and join a group of thirty thousand people who can't get off Cymbalta, right? Like you can really go and see what other people have been experiencing, and if you do that, it's pretty horrific. You see people who have been suffering for years, and I, you know, I tell people all the time, don't go searching for that because you're not going to like what you find. But for me, I just kind of had a little bit of a Pollyanna view that like, this is going to get better one, like it's got to get better soon, right? Yeah. And it, and it took a lot longer than I thought it was going to. But the other thing that was happening at the same time is I had, you know, like you, I had done, I had done talk therapy and it just like didn't work and I couldn't get there with it. And so about two two, three months into severe withdrawal, I was so desperate that my mom suggested this completely kind of out of off the wall therapist (laughs) counselor who blended sort of a spiritual Eastern modality with some Western techniques. And I, I just said, whatever, man, like I'll try it. And so I ended up working with him and it was, it was really the, the key to the lock for me because the way he approached working was not logical. We weren't, you know, going back in the past and talking about, you know, my relationship with my father. You know, we kind of did, but through a circuitous way. It was really more about the emotions I was experiencing at the time. Um, I'm again, like my memories were gone, so we really couldn't connect back, back, back when. But we could deal with these kind of bizarre, almost metaphors that were coming in my head of, you know, a woman wandering in the desert and being abandoned by her tribe. Or there was one where an, a man was eaten alive by insects. And I couldn't really explain why these were coming up, like that I would just have these thoughts of these completely fictional people. But what I know now through working with him is that these these metaphors, these thoughts, these these you know images in my mind were the way my body was trying to bring up what I needed to work on. And by talking about them and expressing the feelings that the woman in the desert had or the man getting eaten alive had, I was actually expressing what was going on in me. Yeah. And being able to do that, I was starting to see little, little bits of, you know, light in a way where I could almost, I would have a glimpse of who I might be out of withdrawal. And so when I finally got on the plane to Malaysia, I had a handful of these little moments so that I just kind of clung to for dear life. <laughs> and I just convinced myself that if I could feel good for literally one second, then it was possible that I could feel good for two seconds. And if I could feel good for two, that could become four and so on and so forth until maybe I could feel good for an hour. And the more work I did emotionally and spiritually, the more of those moments I started to have And then combined with the fact that I was abroad and moving from place to place, and I literally could not blame my problems on anything in my normal life, Yeah, which was a huge gift, I think it actually ended up accelerating my healing because I couldn't blame it on my, you know, how expensive New York was or my business partner or, you know, the fact that I couldn't find a date. Like all that crap didn't matter. It was just me. Yeah. And you're really... And you're focused also just on, you know, where you're going and you're busy and you have those Mm -hmm. distractions. That's so fascinating. Do you know like what type of like 
therapy or like what did he practice? Do you know what if it has a name? I'm just so curious because I'm in like school to become a therapist. So I'm just because I remember reading that those parts in your book where you'd be like repeating things again and again. And it's just so it almost reminds me of like somatic like healing or something a little like bit. That. A little bit. Yeah, this this technique specifically is called compassion key. It's, you know, it's not well known by any means. There are about 50 practitioners around the world who do it. Uh, what's what's amazing about it, I think, is that it's it's fully remote. And this is fully remote in a time well before everyone was remote. Mm-hmm. And the reason why it's remote is actually because the in-person aspect of it, the energy of another person in your space kind of interrupts the ability to interesting really get into the body or the emotion and so for me I it was it was a godsend because I felt so safe right I was in my house I was talking to someone on the other end and I was talking about things that were were so scary that I had I talked to them had I been open and honest to a psychiatrist about what I was thinking and feeling I was really worried that I was going to be put on an involuntary psychiatric hold mm-hmm. so that threat and I mean people run into that all the time with 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 psychiatry so they're just like I'm not going to talk to them about this but then that has nowhere to go right yeah with this I mean my my guy Alan he was in Florida so I was in Malaysia there was nothing he could do and that's so true yeah there was so much freedom in that night you know and I grew to trust him and you know, it's all self-compassion work. Um, and also there's, there's some parallels to, uh, IFS, the inner oh, family. Yeah. Systems. Uh, also a little bit of EMDR, EMDR. Um, and I think there, there can even be some, hip, some parallels drawn with, with hypnotherapy, which I've learned a little bit more about in recent months. And at the end of the day, it's, it really is just about going into the body. And, and listening to the body and what the body is saying, whether or not that's through a physical illness, like a GI issue or, you know, a back pain or into the, the emotional component, uh, that, you know, or the symbolic component, as opposed to just this purely logical place that I feel like doesn't really get at the root of trauma. A hundred percent. No, that's so fascinating. And I, I want to look into it. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering what advice would you give to anyone who's considering either waning off medication or maybe their doctor just prescribed them with something like what advice would you give to that person who's in one way or another reevaluating their relationship with a medication? Sure. Uh, the first thing I think is to really just listen to your own gut instinct here. I mean, there's always going to be a cohort of people who, you know, we'll, we'll say that some, some psychiatric drug saved their life and they want to be on it for the rest of their life. And they're going to be really loud and they sometimes like to deter others who start to question it. And to that, I say, life is a buffet, take what works for you and leave the rest. So if that's you out there. Great. I'm really glad that you had something that works for you, but there are so many other people who don't feel better on these drugs or who wonder if maybe these drugs are actually inhibiting their experience of their life somehow. Then there are other people who are forced to get off of them. You know, perhaps they're, they're pregnant and they, you know, there's some, the risks associated there, or, you know, people like me who just, you kind of wake up one day and say, wait a second, something's wrong here. And so for those people, there's a few things I'd say. First is that there's a lot of, um, 
we've been told a very specific story about these drugs. And and one of them is just, you know, people are often told you can stay on them for the rest of your life. And while that may be technically true, there's no long-term studies, no long-term randomized clinical trials about long-term antidepressant use. So all of the data that we have is for very short-term trials. So if you've been on for basically more than six months, you're out of the window of all the majority of the trials we have. And that's not even to speak of the quality of the trials and yada, yada, that's a whole other thing. So let's start with that. These drugs are designed for short-term use, but how many people are really only on them for six months, right? Mm -hmm. So if they start to wane over time, that's, that's an expected reaction that we, we can see in the data. So if, if you're someone who's saying, okay, I think it might be time to get off of these drugs. What do I do? Uh, the first thing we have to consider is, again, the the literature and the common assumption on how to get off of these drugs is extremely antiquated. So it's changed quite a bit in the past few years, but it's not really made it through into continuing education. And it's certainly not made it through into textbooks or in medical schools at this point. So the bottom line is your doctor may not be aware of this and you may have to actually educate them. So what, what tends to happen now, the current regulations in the U.S. are that, you know, a drug taper can last, you know, two to four weeks and you just, you know, you go down from 100 milligrams to 50 to 25 yeah. and then you're done or whatever it is. And it's it's pretty irresponsible advice. Um, and we know that because of a lot of the research that's coming out of Europe. And so and to the point that the Britain has actually completely changed their regulations, like as a whole, they made full on changes to the to their drug tapering protocols, but the U.S. has not done that. So the the safest way to get off at this point that we know is something called hyperbolic tapering, and the word hyperbolic just means curve. So whereas a linear taper would be something like 100 milligrams to 50 to 25 to zero, because you're cutting down by half each time, mm -hmm. a hyperbolic taper is a percentage, a small percentage of the drug you're currently on. So this is this is coming back to the Ashton manual. This is the way she talks about it for benzos. It's uh, more or less the same with antidepressants. But let's say we're on 100 milligrams of whatever drug, 10% of that would be taking away 10 milligrams. So now we're at 90. So we have to take 90 milligrams. And if we tolerate that, we take 10% of 90. So what is that? Nine milligrams. Now we're at 81 milligrams. And then we hang out there for a while and take 10% of that. So 81 minus 8.1 milligrams. Yeah. But what do you, what is the problem here? It's like, how the hell do you cut that down from your exactly? Metal? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So there are a few ways that we can get around that. Uh, the first one is if you've got a withdrawal informed doctor who understands hyperbolic tapering, they will be able to prescribe you exactly 81 milligrams of whatever you're on. And then you get it through a compound pharmacy. So compound pharmacies exist to make custom doses for, uh, for, for all drugs, right? The problem with co compound pharmacies is not everyone has one where they live. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it can be more expensive. Uh, sometimes you know, it can be tricky from an insurance standpoint, but if you have one in your city, it's probably likely that you could get your custom dose filled through there. When people don't have that, or they don't have a doctor who is withdrawal informed or a variety of other situations in which they're more or less on their own, then very often they literally do it on their own. So people become their own drug lords. You get microgram scales 
and tweezers and razor blades and you shave off, you know, some, but then you have to be informed, right? You can't just cut all pills in half. Some have to be diluted in a liquid situation. Some you can count, open up capsules and count beads. Others you can shave off bits of it. So people actually end up, you know, they end up on learning about this all on their own in order, in order to taper off. And, you know, the, the thing is, is that even though we have these guidelines, it's still very much something that should be guided ultimately by the patient because some yeah. people, not everyone is going to have a, an issue. So some people can just kind of skate through and then they look at the rest of us like, I don't understand what the problem is. <laughs> and then other people are just like, I I am stuck at 14.5 milligrams of Celexa and can't go down lower than that because every time I do, I have horrific withdrawal and, you know, they're titrating through eyedroppers. It's just, it's just the, the range of physical experience is so wide that we, you can't know what bucket you're going to fall into until you end up there. So at this point, the, you know, best researchers in the world say that, you know, slow hyperbolic tapering gives you the best shot of keeping severe withdrawal symptoms at bay. Wow. That's so fascinating. It just shows like how many hurdles there are in the, um, unsurprisingly like big pharma community. (laughs) Yeah. So, completely unrelated but related to your life experience is the fact that you not only were on the show chopped but you won which is such a random thing but is so cool so I was wondering if you could just give a quick like cliff notes version of like how that all happened and what that was like Sure. So the first thing is that when I applied for Chopped, uh, I I had met the casting director at a party in New York, like, you know, such a New York thing. Yeah. And, and I was, I had my bakery at the time and she just said, you know, you should totally apply for Chopped. We're always looking for local female chefs. And I kind of looked at her and I was like, I don't work with fish and vegetables. I make cupcakes. Like what, why, you know? And she just said, ah, you know, just, just give it a shot. And so this was before, this was in 20, like October, 2015. So this was before getting off the antidepressants was on my radar at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, wouldn't come for a few more months. This was, I just, you know, I was very jaded and bored and outraged in life and just thought that this was something to do. I also didn't think I'd get chosen because again, why would they choose me? <laughs> but she told me why, because they need local chefs because they don't pay for trans, they don't pay for travel. They also need women because there's not as many women in the industry. So they're trying to get them on TV. So I got chosen. I went through, I had to fill out a uh, questionnaire and then there was an on-camera interview, maybe one other, I can't remember. But the process was quite long to the point where from the when I first applied in October to when I got accepted, I had made the decision to go off the antidepressants and was actually fully in withdrawal when I got an email saying that I was going to be a child <laughs> and my episode was going to film in June and I completely lost it. I mean, I just had a full on meltdown because I was so just, I was such a wreck and I was like, I can't go on TV. But I also am not really one to back out on things I commit to. So I've, so I actually did a lot of work with my counselor around this idea because I was so worried about either having, you know, a withdrawal, being in a severe withdrawal uh, wave when it happened or just embarrassing myself because, you know, 
TV. High potential for embarrassment. <clears throat> but uh, I'm really glad we did that work. It did help. And, you know, I won't give too many of the things away. I mean, we know I won, but even though I won, it is still a very entertaining 45 minutes of television. It is on Hulu. It's season 32, episode six. Oh my gosh, I'm 100% going to watch that after this. <laughs> it's Chocolate Obsession. It was a chocolate-themed episode, which adds an extra little bit of interest in there. And yeah, it's kind of fun to watch because if you know I was in withdrawal at the time, uh, I mean... I was really grateful because the producers did not edit me into the hot mess that I was. They they really could have. I was apparently entertaining enough in a variety of ways that they they chose to edit me as more just like flustered mess. But I'm so grateful for them for that. But I in, in reality, I actually spent a lot of time crying and very upset. But uh, it was you know it was a fun experience in the end, mostly because I won. I don't think yeah. I talk about. It. <laughs> and it's like it's just so I mean it's almost like funny too in, in the fact that I can't think of like a less chaotic show <laughs> and I just like because I'm moving back to New York and I think about like how the intensity of the city just like it, it yeah. makes you just like so stressed and you're like why am I stressed like right now I'm actually doing pretty well but the everyone else's anxiety is like being seeped into my skin and yeah. like that environment I'm always like 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 I get like hyperventilating watching it from my uh, couch, but so major props. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it just felt just as just as stressful, like there. I it was the most it was the most intense emotional day of my life, and I and I don't say that hyperbolically because you know I mean you know, you listen to this podcast you you know there's you know I've had some bad days, but I've never had an experience. <laughs> that would take you so high and then pull you down so low. And then like, you know, you're, you're worried about your business. You're worried about how you're coming off. You're worried about just not cutting yourself because that's the ultimate embarrassment on chopped. And then at the same time, you're like deeply competitive. And, you know, if you make it through one round, there's just this huge bit, bit of relief. And then all of a sudden it dawns on you that you have to do it again. And then, yeah. And then a producer pulls you off to the side and said, so how do you think your father would feel about this? And then you start crying. Oh my gosh. And then at the end, someone gives you $10,000. It's the weirdest thing. It was, it was the weirdest day. Yeah. Honestly, thank God you won. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I always wrap up with some questions similar to uh, what we talked about and some kind of unrelated, but the first question is, what is one thing in your life that's happened to you that's made you a stronger person today? Oh, I mean, you know, uh, the, both the antidepressant withdrawal and just my dad died when I was 15. It's just, it's one of those things you never think you're going to say when you're going through it, that you actually are grateful for the experience. And then the longer, you know, more time that goes by, I just, you know, would I, rev would I take my dad back in a second? Absolutely. But on the other hand... I like myself better after what I learned from going through all this. Absolutely. Next question is somewhat related. So I'd be curious to hear your opinion, but do you believe everything happens for a reason? I do. I, I'm a bit of the, the, the mindset that while we have free will, we're kind of also on a set path. Like we're each here to, 
learn some specific things, but there's a variety of ways in which we can manifest that learning opportunity. Yeah. I like that perspective. And I think it's like, it, it's like, especially when we find our purpose or like our passion, we can then look back and kind of be like, Oh, maybe that led me to this, which led me to this, which is why I'm here. Um, and also I think like kind of, as you mentioned, there can be like a lesson learned or a skill gained or growth experienced from different things that happen, good or bad. And I, and I think too, that the trick is really to learn to grow without crisis. And that if you start to really pay attention, you know, the universe starts by, you know, poking you with a thorn and then it hits you with a stick and the tree doesn't fall on you until you've already been alerted multiple times. Yeah. You don't pay attention to those signals coming in. That's when we get hit by the tree and there's a big crisis to fix. And I think if you can kind of start learning what it's like when you're getting lessons in a small way, then you can actually avoid the big tree. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Next question is, do you have a favorite quote or a mantra that you live by? Ooh, uh, probably. I mean, the one that's up for me right now is, um, I shoot, I forget who said it, but it's, uh, there are those who can see, those who can see when shown, and those who will never see. Ooh, I, I like that. Is it like, what what does it like mean? I I keep it in mind when I'm talking to people about this topic. It's just that, you know, there are going to be those who understand what you're saying and see your perspective. And maybe they don't agree with you, but they can see it and they don't, you know, they're, they, they'll, they'll take what you say and take it, take it with them. Mm-hmm. And then there are others who can see when shown where you might have to explain the way it works or basically kind of walk them to water. But then when they get there, you know, they'll drink. And then there are those who can't see it all. No matter what you do, what you say, they're never, ever going yeah. to come around and whether that's in a personal relationship or a professional one. And those are the people that just, you know, need to, you need to shake the dust off your feet and walk away and just let them be. Yeah, exactly. You mentioned like those are like the, if you take, you can take a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. Like I feel that similarly just with mental health and like, yeah, it having conversations with people like family members and whatnot and being like, ultimately like I can't make the decision for them or, or they're like yeah. they'll they'll decide when yeah. when and if they want to mm-hmm. um next question is what do you love most about yourself oh man I you know <laughs> this became really evident during the pandemic but I grew up as an only child and I love being alone like not in not in some sort of weird, you know, never leave my house, don't talk to people kind of way, but I'm so comfortable at home with myself that it just like in my heart that it brings a lot of peace because if I don't, you know, I just got out of a big relationship. So if I don't end up in a partnership or, you know, I don't have kids or whatever, I know that I can bring value to my life and want to wake up every morning just by the simple fact that I like being with me and I find the world curious. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I just read Jay Shetty's book, like eight rules of love and his, the whole thing on solitude is so fascinating. And yeah. um, you, and you live in New York city, correct? I, I am right now. I'm here for a little while. I used to live here full time and now um, I've been all around the world, but my hometown is in Reno, Nevada. And then I've been there and now I'm in New York and it's just kind of, 
I think that's part of why I've been everywhere. I'm just kind of like, I can be at home with myself anywhere. So, (laughs) yeah. But I feel like New York also is just a really wonderful city to like, I don't know, explore alone and like, I don't know, like going to museums and, um, you know, just walking aimlessly. That's something I miss. Um, But I guess I'll be doing soon. (laughs) The date is coming back that I need to move back. Um, But my last question, which is the name of the podcast, is how do you find solace in the city? And city can be New York, Reno, or just like arbitrary. I can I can honestly say that it, the strategies are different in a place like New York than when I'm in my hometown where things are there. <laughs> generally just, I don't want to say easier, but it's, there's less friction in between you and solace. Um, you know, honestly, for, for me, one thing I've been doing here is I in my in my home in Reno I have a lot of light where I live so there are a lot of windows and I can kind of come downstairs in the morning and just have sunlight in my face and I walk my dog so I immediately go outside and here I don't have that and one of the easiest and most beneficial things that I can do is basically as soon as I get up in the morning I go walk outside and stare stare at the sun not into it but like just you can find me you can find me around 7:30 in the morning standing on State Street and Atlantic Avenue in Brooklyn just like in my PJs just with the sun coming at me because it doesn't come into my apartment at all. And I look ridiculous, but getting the sun first thing in the morning not only do does it help, you know, set your circadian rhythm, which helps you sleep better, which makes your life better, but it also it just kind of grounds me. It just, you know, there's not a lot of grounding in New York. The only way you can get dirt on your feet is if you go to Central Park, but to stand in the sun and just feel it for even just, you know, two to five minutes, take a walk around the block very first thing in the morning, I find sets me up for a more peaceful day, probably more than any other practice I have. Yeah, I agree. I'm, I mean, right now I, I'm in Austin where it's usually sunny all the time and it recently it's just been gray and rainy and I'm like losing it because <laughs> like I mean I was so used to this in New York when I'm like it's supposed to be nice here like it's not fair but Brooke thank you so much for coming on this podcast your book is amazing where can everyone buy it where can they follow you um yeah plug everything so you can find me all over the internet at Brooke Seam so that's b-r-o-o-k-e-s-i-e-m and then the book is available wherever books are sold. So obviously you can get it on Amazon. You can get it at Barnes and Noble. You can get it uh, internationally through any major bookstore too. You probably have to order it, but you can definitely get it all over the world. Amazing. Well, thank you again and bye everyone. Mm-hmm.